Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. All right, faithful listeners, we are back. This is Steve Yamada, the Shadow King of New Orleans. I am embracing that title. I'm here with my partner, as always. T. Cole Newton. We are here at 12 Mile Limit, my Mid-City Bar. Uh, we got a couple of great guests for you for this episode. We wanted to talk about uh, some social justice work that is going on here in the city of New Orleans. So joining me today from the Vera Institute of Justice, Karina Yazbek. She is the Senior Associate for Strategic Partnerships and also Sue Mobley who, in addition to being the co-director of Paper Monuments, is, and I'm going to read this slowly because it took a while to write down, public program manager of the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design at the Tulane School of Architecture. How do you do, Sue? That was well done. That was Thank well you. done. Okay. Now say it faster. Oh. Three times. Faster. Three times. No. Oh, Sue, how fast can you say it? <laughs> I'm public programs manager at the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design at Tulane School of Architecture. Uh, would you like to become a co-host on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like it's time for an upgrade. <laughs> Actually, I might be the one who gets replaced. So don't, don't, let's not, let's not entertain those thoughts. She has enough jobs. <laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, you guys were both involved with some of the work that Bear was doing recently, the Bourbon Alliance for Responsible Entertainers. And it's why we, that's the only reason we've all been in the same room recently. And it's what made me think, it's like, oh, they, they are not, exact, not necessarily working closely on anything right now. After, now that that's sort of, uh, you know, they're sort of looking for a new direction right now, as far as I can tell, because they were, I think, more successful than they expected to be. So it's sort of like, what's the next fight mode for them? Um, but you guys do a lot of work that's sort of, with a similar interest area, at the very least. So I thought it might be interesting to bring you both together and talk about social justice in the city of New Orleans. We're fixing it, right? We got 300 years in. We got to be getting close to, to justice now. Karina, you want to you take that? Do we, are we, yes, are just, we living in a just and fair society these days? mere steps away. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, we have come a long way. Uh, my organization has had an office here in New Orleans since 2006. And um, when Vera first opened... Um, it was when there was FEMA money available to rebuild the jail, and um, the previous jail was uh, had 7,000 beds, housed about 6,000 people, and New Orleans incarcerated folks at 10 times the national, is that right? 10 times the national average, and we were the global leader in our rate of incarceration, mm-hmm. um, so based on like resident per inmate. Um, is New Orleans, does because I knew that Louisiana incarcerates at a higher rate than the rest of the 50 states, and America the United States yep. of America, uh, incarcerates at a higher rate than the rest of the world. Right. Does New Orleans incar- incarcerate at a higher rate than the rest of the state? Because that's like a real triple mm. threat there. We are no, we no longer, that's a good question. Within Louisiana, I'm not sure how we rank in terms of other parishes. Um, because it's a parish jail, right? But we um, are no longer the national leader, so we are New Orleans is no longer the global leader in incarceration. Thanks in no small part to efforts um, like social justice organization by social justice organizations like Vera, but also of course vote OPP or the Orleans Parish Prison Reform Coalition members um, and advocates throughout the city. I remember I was hearing vote the 
the Ben Watson, the tight end of the Saints, I recently heard on the radio advocating for the kind of work that vote does. The voice of the ex-offender, they get uh, they're advocating for the right to for felons to regain the right to vote after mm. there's and there's legislation right now that's uh, that's hopefully. Yeah. Might, might stand a chance. Nope. The bill is on the governor's desk. Oh, really? Hey, it passed what? out of the, the yep. legislature? Yep. That's amazing. Yep. And we've wow. got we've got a guy who's mostly a Democrat in the governor's house right now. <laughs> yeah, he's expected <laughs> to sign it. That's, that's really great news. Also, if you haven't seen the gif of Norris Henderson and Reese Riley hugging when <laughs> it's announced, it's maybe the most joyful thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Norris Henderson is uh, is one of the people behind Voice of the, Hex- Voice of the Ex-Offender vote uh, and was uh, wrongly incarcerated for murder for decades, if that's if I'm not mistaken, and um, has come out and is doing amazing advocacy work now on yeah, the other side. Yeah, just a quick point of clarification. They've changed their name. Oh, yeah? Because Ex-Offender is stigmatizing. Oh, it's I was unaware. A voice of the experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ah, that's pretty cool. It is, yeah. They're doing great work around like the Black Mamas bailout mm-hmm. that just happened on Mother's Day nationally, where they were putting money up to bail mothers out of our local jail. Um, but this legislative win is amazing. So after five, five years, years off on probation and parole, five years post-release, post even if you're on parole, you can vote. Your voting rights are restored. So you're right. We're right there. We achieved yeah. social yeah, justice. Yeah, oh, it's high five, everyone. No <laughs> Which is, I mean, particularly amazing because I remember being at mm-hmm. Women with a Vision's Black Women's Legislative Day last year and seeing them testify and seeing mm-hmm. state legislatures just tear apart like the reasoning and the moral arguments behind it in mm-hmm. ways that were incredibly duplicitous. Yeah, and very cynical. And so, like, a year later, to be able to celebrate this yeah. as a win is incredible. That's so much progress in such a short period of time. And I think to speak to that sort of 300 years and are we at justice yet, like, mm. no, we're not. But there are moments where it's accelerationist, where, like, all of the years of yeah. work that go in suddenly gain traction and move and things can change so quickly. For me, one of the... Sorry, Steve, you were... Oh, I was going to say, do you find um, that, that, I mean, I'd imagine, I, I don't have a lot of experience, I have no experience with politics in, in, in Louisiana for the most part, besides just shaking my head very often, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I, I have a feeling that like the conservative block that's probably coming from like North Louisiana and other parts of the state as well, um, that fight a lot of these issues, their, their arguments are going to be very anecdotal and very moral based, as you were saying. Do you find like oftentimes when you are trying to address the issues such as this, that you're taking statistical arguments that you're using more like a scientific and analytical approach. And then you just hit this like, you know, but I think that this is going to happen kind of argument. Do you want to field that first? or No, you I? take that one. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Vera's work is based in data and evidence, and we collect and analyze data from a variety of sources within the local criminal justice system, but then our um, sort of parent organization based in New York um, did a whole website, the um, incarceration trends um, since the 1970s, what have counties around the country, um, what have their incarceration trends looked like? And so you can really like look at the data by race, by gender, um, and see what, what has happened over time and correlate it to crime trends. So that we, we know in the 90s when um, crime, especially violent crime, was much higher, we were incarcerating the most number of people in history. And so 
if those if more incarceration did not lead to safer cities, then what what else? Right. Like you sort of reach a point of diminishing returns. And we know that wrongfully incarcerating people or over incarcerating folks because they have a mental illness, addiction or poverty issue, Mm -hmm. just it destabilizes their lives and leaves them with fewer opportunities when they're back in our communities. And then they make desperate, more desperate choices. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, does that answer your question? And well, and it's interesting that you pointed out the conservative because actually like we're in this like unique moment in time as a country, but also as a state where there is left right Alliance Mm -hmm. on decarceration, um, where the Koch brothers are investing money and reducing prison populations. And Grover Norquist was the keynote speaker at a criminal justice summit here in the fall of 2015. And my head was spinning. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to mention something like that. A few years ago, I felt like there was a real watershed moment nationally when the Oklahoma state legislature Mm -hmm. banned the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And I can't think, I think at the time there was zero Democrats on the Oklahoma state legislature. I think they still have zero democratic people in Congress. They're, there's it's a 100% Republican state, but there are still people, uh, but there, the, there's an, a wing of the Republican party that, that is very strong and ideologically pure in a way that really believes truly in shrinking the power of the government. Mm-hmm. And the framing for that was that the greatest example of government overreach is whether or not an individual citizen should live or die. Mm-hmm. And that if you give the government that power, then you're essentially granting them unlimited power over people's lives. And I think the, the reframing a criminal justice reform, it creates this opportunity, as you know, for an alliance mm-hmm. between people who approach these issues from a social justice framework and people who approach these issues from a small government framework. They want the same things in this case, yeah. at least. So it's there's some opportunities there, and well, we're seeing that. I want to say something. I want to kick it to Sue because I think like there are two oppositions that we encounter a lot. One is the folks who have a vested economic interest in maintaining the systems the way they are, and that includes even Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, sort of the trolls in the comment section on on newspapers, right? So oh, they're the best. Like I think the folks who. Um, who oppose everything progressive in our city, everything racially justice or racial justice oriented are the same ones who oppose criminal justice reform. I was going to say, I think that um, what Cole just mentioned about framing is Mm. so critical that like I'm trained as a mixed method, social scientist, and I am a data person like deep in my soul. Um, But I'm also a qualitative researcher and a storyteller. And I have, found that like the power of changing that narrative of reframing things um is tremendous in a way that simply throwing more numbers um at an issue often isn't so Mm -hmm. i may not be able to change your mind by throwing you know this is how many people and this is how much economic damage and i might but i think the progressives often want to be right and we want to throw out like this is what proves that i'm right But if you're talking to someone who's coming at it from a moral stance or from a narrative stance, their understanding of the world is in play in a way that you can't actually throw enough data at to change. Hmm. What you can do is find those ways to tell stories and connect the dots that allows for empathy, that allows someone to unpack something and not take a defensive stance. And I think that that's often where we do see 
the room to make connections or to build coalition is in, is in repositioning something so that it can be understood differently. Just not on the comments section of NOLA.com. Right? <laughs> Nobody should spend any time in the comments section of NOLA.com. It is a black I, hole. Th- this it is, is the worst At, at the place. risk of, uh, of outing myself a little bit here, I've spent a little bit of time in the comments section of NOLA.com. And I've spent an, a little bit of time in the comments section of Pornhub. And the level of discourse is much higher in the comments section at Pornhub. <laughs> People are much nicer, especially to women, <laughs> than they are in the comments section of NOLA.com. I'm definitely going to want to hear more about this. Would you expound? I'd rather not at this time. But yes. Um, Sometimes we cut things out on the show. I'm not cutting that out. That's perfect. That's great. It's going to stay on. Um, We talked a little bit about Vera. Uh, Sue, do you want to talk a little bit about the work that the uh, Center for Collaborative Design at the Tulane School of Architecture does? (laughs) So Small Center is part of the School of Architecture. We're the community design center of the School of Architecture, and we work with nonprofits and community-based organizations to design or design and build um, things that help them to better achieve their missions. Um, We also do what we were calling graphic advocacy, and then it was giving Tulane anxiety, so we're now calling messaging, (laughs) Um, where we take advantage of the fact that our students have solid graphic sensibilities and design skills to work with organizations to better tell stories about the work that they're doing. Um, And then as part of all of those facets, sort of help people to figure out who are the connections that they need to make, who are the allies that have yet to be found, who are the funders who can be brought to the table. How do we build you a stronger web of people to work with to move forward what you're trying to move forward? All right. Uh, and uh, lest we forget your other hat, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about paper monuments? Um, so again, this is there's a lot of storytelling in my life right now. Um, <laughs> paper monuments is a public history and public art project um, that is telling stories of New Orleans history that are too often either obscured or erased mm. from our sort of mainstream narrative while also asking the residents of New Orleans to tell us what they think is an appropriate monument for New Orleans today. Okay. So, where, what... <laughs> Go ahead. Confederacy. Is the, like, <laughs> that's a word we may have been dancing around a little bit for a moment there. Um, yeah. Uh, for anyone who may not be aware... The city of New Orleans removed several of its, but not all, if I'm not mistaken. There's still a handful up. There's, there's definitely still, the, the Buffalo Soldier's Monument, really monument that's over on Jefferson. And there's still like three or four monuments on Jefferson Davis. That are specifically honoring the Confederacy? Yeah, and absolutely. not to mention the fact that they're on Jefferson they're Davis Parkway. They're getting like every other week. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Take Them Down has an incredible map, um, which Kelly Porter put together, of yeah. all of the... Place names, school names, street names, statues mm-hmm. across the city. I was always a little bit interested with that list too. And somebody was explaining to me recently that with like uh, with advocacy, sometimes you cast a wider net in order to focus on the things that you're actually going to be able to accomplish mm-hmm. as well. But with the take them down, if I'm not mistaken, one time I looked at the list and they wanted to take the down the Joan of Arc monument, like at the end of Decatur Street. Huh. I could be completely wrong about that. I feel I saw that on the list one time, and that was the one head scratcher because I'm totally for like the cause and everything like that. But that was the one I was like, <laughs> I don't know why, and I would like to know why. Like, yeah, well, is Joan of Arc problematic? Does, maybe. That, does no. anyone know? I have no idea. And it's one of the. It's for me. It's hard to because their list is much more thorough than mine. 
Because I look at somebody like Andrew Jackson, and I think he's, yeah, he's probably one of history's greatest monsters. But he did win the Battle of New Orleans, and if that's what we are specifically honoring him for, then that's a hard argument to make, that we shouldn't, in New Orleans, be honoring him for winning a battle without which New Orleans might not be part of the United States. Though, to be fair, the war was already over. Yeah, yeah. but you think England would really have just there. given it back like, if I'm they happened to win it in the meantime? My new co-host, Sue, over here, who's not supporting genocidal maniacs. <laughs> That's, you should put that on your business card. Sue Mobley, not supporting genocidal maniacs. <laughs> that That's enough be, titles. That might like. be one of my business cards. <laughs> what are the, uh, let's, let's pivot away from, I mean, I think the, at least the four of us are probably on the same page about honoring the, the fallen sons of the Confederacy. Or <laughs> yeah, um, but what uh, what are the common answers that people have for the appropriate monuments? Uh, I mostly what I hear are musicians, uh, your your Alan Toussaints and your your Louis Armstrongs and the like. Uh, are there people who are not entertainers who are also on commonly on lists? So here's what's really interesting about this is that we I see a lot of the musicians and entertainers showing up in the comment section of NOLA.com um, <laughs> and a lot on social media. But our project is modeled after a sibling project in Philadelphia called Monument Lab, um, which spent years collecting um, public proposals for what was an appropriate monument to that city today. Um, and like them, the range of things that we're getting when people actually put pen to paper is tremendous and it's beautiful and it's not a flip answer of the latest entertainer who died Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you know the person you think of when you go to the jukebox it's people asking for monuments to the grandmothers who hold together our churches and Mm. our communities Mm. or the teachers who lifted up black children when there was no funding for our schools it's some of them are really epic and are about like big New Orleans stories and and the folks who were lost in Katrina or mm. the housing projects that were destroyed and some of them are super intimate and some of them are just funny. Um, we have monuments to mules and Adam as the basic building block of all things <laughs> put forth by an 11 year old in mid city. Respect. Yeah. <laughs> and they're lovely and it's you know a lot of what this project was designed to be was a snapshot of this moment in new orleans you know in a moment that is not about responding to a disaster um and in a moment that is not about anything other than we've been here for 300 years and what does the next 300 look like and Mm. what do we want together in this moment and it's a place for people to say what's important to them and to put forth that as a proposal of what should be honored in public space. That's awesome. Yeah, I I think um, to to go with that whole snapshot thing you were talking a little about a little bit, like you know, with the pedestal in the middle of what is still the circle at the moment. Like everybody's like, what should we put up there? What should we put up there? And with Tom Benson passing, everybody's like, well, that's what we need to turn it into. We need to turn it into Tom Benson Circle because it's so <laughs> sad that he died. And like for me, I'm just sitting here. It's like the man was the richest man in the state, and I, I mean, like he lived to be ninety. It's like there's nothing sad about this. That's a very happy life. <laughs> yeah, I he, feel he right? achieved the uh, <laughs> yeah. the pinnacle of success. 
in his field. He, he used he used his money to achieve all his success. That's that's a wonderful story, I guess. But I mean, like, like is that exactly bad. what we need to put up for so like young people capitalism. to be like walking around and being like, look, this is like we're staring at this yeah, thing, like, looking down. At look this. at that guy. He was rich and he got really rich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's a little bit scary, dude. Uh, I I know that um, there was on Nola.com there was an article that was out that was showing the artist renditions of proposals for changes to Lee Circle that I found to be pretty interesting. I mean, they didn't list a whole lot of details. I didn't. I didn't see that. What, what were some of the? What were some of the? Fun Those stuff. were really early mm-hmm. renderings yeah. by a landscape architecture firm a year ago. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think it was one of those like out of office kind of like look what we wanted to accomplish, but we're not here anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. But like you know, no money earmarked for it, nothing like that. But I, to me, it was like interesting to like think about. I think New Orleans in an aspect for a lot of things, like something like like that circle right there, like it should be more of a community space when it comes down to it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's this bridge, this crossroads between so many different neighborhoods that like, why aren't we utilizing that to try and bring like more of these communities together and develop like spaces where we can have a little more commonality. So the idea of that being more like a park or like this like fountain that they can drain and have festivals there or something like that, that was really interesting to me. Well, and I spend a lot of time there. So I live in the lower garden district. I used to work in the CBD on Carondelet at uh, Poydras and now I'm on OC Haley, but I, I do walk through the circle pretty often. And also the program that I primarily run at Vera is, um, preventing, uh, the arrest of folks who chronically struggle with untreated mental illness, addiction and trauma issues, Mm -hmm. um, but who are cycling through our criminal justice system on low level, uh, charges. <clears throat> so I see a lot of homeless folks on Lee Circle, right? And it's not far from Ozanam Inn. Um, I think a l- that that's where a lot of our homeless men sleep at night. And um, it's if you if you look at summonses issued to homeless folks over and over again, that's what they put as their address. And so I would be so and, and the Calliope, you know, under the overpass, that's a gathering spot and a and camp and um is it Coliseum? Yeah, Camp and Coliseum, that like mm-hmm. green space right there. You know, so yeah. Well, the bridge house used to be over there too, right? Which is oh, close. bridge house and gray house. No, is it? It looked closed oh. when I went by. I saw for lease sign on it the other day. I wonder, but it must have maybe moved. it's a third store. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, and and Grace House is still on Camp. Um, right. So, so what if it were a monument to you know to raise awareness and and honor folks who've advocated for like marginally housed homeless folks folks struggling their entire lives with addiction and mental illness it's like a living monument at that point too <laughs> and 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 maintain it as a welcoming space that those folks feel like they can go to because they mm-hmm. think if we i don't know as you change spaces you change like who feels welcome there sure yeah. which i think is one of the things that that as someone who works with and around public space a lot like yeah. for me a lot of what you know we will in theory and maybe help steer this process. Yeah. So in some ways I don't get to have an opinion. So I'm going to mm. go ahead and state my opinion now and then, <laughs> and then facilitate. Right. Yeah. Um, I would love to see us have that kind of community space, that kind of gathering space and a space that is welcoming to everyone. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that new Orleans doesn't have is a lot of public shared spaces. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of spaces that imply a transitory passing through. We have neutral mm-hmm. grounds. We have linear parks, mm. but we're much more dependent than a lot of cities on the idea of people having property and having backyards. And this very low density allows for that. And our public squares are 
often very formal public squares with a, a statue in the middle or a fountain in the middle and like places where you're supposed to sit a certain way mm -hmm. or engage with space a certain way. And I'd love to see us really put money into our public parks. And I'd love to see us create a new space that is a community space because part of why it's hard to connect people is because we don't have the spaces where people do you, do you think that there's connect. a relationship between that lack of public gathering places and our cultural practice of just taking it to the streets for any mm. given festival or fair that we're, it's, it's always it's like what street are we going to shut down to do mm. this that's interesting i think that they they scaffold on each other i think you know we don't have public spaces because we have heavily regulated where certain bodies could gather mm. over time. Um, we've, we've limited access to enslaved people and free people of color. We've limited access to working class whites. We've shut off places where interracial unions used to gather to protest mm. the bosses. Mm -hmm. um, we've done everything within the power of those with power to limit the places that people could gather and create a force. Um, and I think that the street life, the, the taking it to the streets is a reflection of that practice, mm -hmm. a way of evading that power um, that has also become embedded in cultural practices because cultural practices are often, are always <laughs> resistance practices, are always reclamations of space and identity and the right to claim both. All right. And now Michael McDonald is stuck in my head. Thanks a lot, Cole. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. It's a, it's a factor. That's one of the, we've discussed that about, uh, uh, about New Orleans before, about how unique we are to have that valve and that every, like a lot of cultures have something like that. It's some sort of common cultural time where everything is topsy turvy and the, the fool is king for a day or whatever it is. And where, if, and, and you know, everyone in the street is just sort of equal. And, you know, and then in, in, you know, Mardi Gras in Italy where all the, they actually had to ban masking for the clergy because they would also wear masks and do horrible things in the streets because it was a time when everyone was equal and everyone was going to be forgiven the next day anyway. Define um, horrible things. Uh, <laughs> nah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sexual violence. They were perpetrating sexual violence, uh, and the and the the institute. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the twist. The, the the Roman Catholic Church used to be responsible for some sexual violence. Shocking. So I don't know if uh, you guys heard Tell about me that. More. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but then breaking but news. New Orleans, and I think again, in, in proportion to how difficult it is to live here even for you know <laughs> people who are relatively affluent it's often just a very frustrating place to live and i'm sure much more so the the lower you are on the uh, socioeconomic uh, strata um so but we ha we also concur by the same measure have the, the most street festivals and the most opportunities where there's that great leveling effect of everyone just being sort of in the crowd in the throng together yeah. I um I mean, and I know we've talked about this before, especially with like the episodes when we've talked about like you know not drinking specifically, but you know New Orleans in and of itself really lacks third spaces that don't involve alcohol, and that release mechanism when you know, where we've got second lines, when we've got like all these festivals that we do as well, everything is revolving around like a celebration, usually consumption of alcohol or something like that as well. Um, you know that's something we really are lacking in the city. It's just third spaces where people can you know 
you, they can socialize, they can meet, they can feel relaxed. It's not work. It's not home. But, you know, they don't involve, like, a celebration. They don't involve, like, going all out or drinking or, like, you know, going crazy or anything like that. Like, there has to be, like... Maybe, that, that's, maybe if it's not the expectation, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure, bring a beer or whatever. But if, if that's not central to the idea of the of whatever you're doing. And, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Cool. <laughs> Every, everything's an excuse to get fucked up. <laughs> it is it is like it's, it's really interesting to see like when like protests and marches are happening or something like that it's like okay cool well we're gonna hit this bar along the way this bar along the way, this bar along the way. it's like i'm carrying a keg behind me it's like uh i don't think this is how most people protest i mean you turn more people well, out that way you can't be drinking public other but places. i've seen like less of that over the past year mm. okay like i but definitely remember taking that it being... seriously or well i remember that being true um to some extent in the period after Katrina that it was often like people are drinking at the protests mm-hmm. as, a, as a matter of course. But I think even that has a like very heavy race and class divide about who's drinking during mm-hmm. the protest and Absolutely. who's taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's topical as well. Who's directly impacted by what we're protesting versus who's there because they are a social justice warrior. Yeah. And I think over the past year, year and a half, I've seen people take it more seriously across the board. Cool. Huh. I have a confession. Um. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a bar card. She I say this also as someone who has definitely been like, mm, in order to make it through this protest, I'm going to need a triple vodka ton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, no judgment-free zone. I get it. Um, that The first Tales of the Cocktail I ever went to was um, like minutes like literally max and i left a trayvon martin um rally with by the i think organized by the nation of islam on poitras and walked into the quarter and went to tales of the cocktail (laughs) and we were just going to like our plan it was early on when you could still buy tasting bracelets and um we were just going to buy a tasting bracelet and hit all hit up all the free rooms because we're not in the industry Mm -hmm. um and they were like oh we just closed like sorry we're closed for the weekend and we were like but we were at a protest (laughs) (laughs) we're late because we were trying to help advance social justice and they took pity on us and gave them to us for free nice which was way to milk it (laughs) (laughs) well played Uh, but it felt awkward for sure the other end of that spectrum was like alcohol can really like if that's what it takes to bring people together, sometimes that's yeah. a tool you can use, yeah. you know, that we do a lot of social advocacy work here. And I think it's sometimes more effective here because people can come and get a beer and write some postcards to their congressperson. And that and like bars are, are, are community centers in that way. They're whatever people want them to be. So if people come to a bar and want that bar to be a, a phone bank for a day, yeah. then that's what the bar should be. And we I do just, that. I think it My, can also be a really point, easy point of entry mm. where like people feel like, oh, okay, well, I can go have a, a beer <laughs> and like see what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, that to me is, is really powerful in part because the left tends not to do a great job about making easy points of entry. Like we often demand ideological purity from the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that we not, can be not like, great at meeting people where they are, no, nah, not great at meeting people where they are. The right's like, are you willing to hold this sign? You're in. Actually, <laughs> we'll radicalize you later. The left is like, I'm sorry. Have you read the entirety of Marx's menu? There, there was a song that was pretty <laughs> popular a few years ago um, about the role that alcohol plays in social justice uh, movements. It was called Tub Thumping. 
by a band called Shumbawamba, and they were <laughs> which, anarchists. Maybe you've they heard were of total it. anarchists. Yeah. yeah, they were. But that was like, but they were. Their whole mission was creating pop music that was catchy enough to be a top forty hit, while subversively telling people to steal their records mm. and to smash the capitalist structure. Um, but that was the point of Dublin was that you you know you you, dr- you you drink a lot, you sing the songs that remind you of the better times, <laughs> and then you but it gives you this. Get, get out of here. Come on. That was a good song. But that, that gives you the courage to stand up on your bar stool and like tell the world what you really think about the world in a way that you might not have the strength to do without those inhibition loosening uh, chemicals. If there's ever been a time for a transition, I think this is a pretty good one at this point. <laughs> uh, Cole's opinions on music. Y'all can find out more about that on Facebook. Uh, we're going to actually jump into our uh, regular segment sponsored by our benevolent sponsors. I said sponsored twice, but uh, we're going to jump behind the bar. Then Cole's going to make us a drink and we'll be back sure, in just I'm a couple minutes. Here. Cheers. Cheers. It is now time to jump behind the bar. We got Cole here. He's going to make a drink, as promised from our first segment. Uh, I'm going to make segment. a drink. It's the first time in a couple of, couple of episodes that I'm hopping behind the bar. Steve's been handling this bit on his own in the last few. So thanks for picking up the slack for us, Steve. Oh, no worries. Uh, I've got a uh, what's basically a Negroni variation for you. I call it the Van Buren because uh, it's also a bit of a martini play. Because um, It's a vodka martini. Uh, well, more of a vodka Martinez uh, Negroni. Uh, so we're going to start with, it's an equal parts cocktail. I think uh, m- many Negronis are. They don't think they necessarily need to be, but mine are in equal parts. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start with an ounce of uh, Carpano Antica Vermouth from our benevolent sponsors. I think that's a good point with a lot of Negroni variations. I think like Bouvardiers do not have to always be equal proportion. Uh, I think uh, Mezcal Negronis as well when people, that seems to be pretty popular around it recently. Mm-hmm. I don't usually go equal proportion with that either. I like a good equal parts mezcal Negroni, but again, I, I don't think that it's so sacrosanct that people who get upset when it's not a one-one-one cocktail, right? You know, come on, get leave room for the rest of the world to do things their own way. Yeah, you're, you're, you, who died and made you cocktail Jesus, you jerk? Cocktail Jesus. <laughs> uh, I'd then, like to thank our benevolent sponsors once again yeah. for hosting this segment. Then I've got an ounce of Malort. I'm using an old bottle of Bosca Snops that uh, probably is, is no longer made uh, where this one is made at the very least. This was from their uh, from when they were producing in France. I think they've moved their production to Iceland. Hmm. I'm also not sure if they're even making this product anymore, but it's a delicious Malort if they are. There are other Malorts available if they're not. Yeah. Uh, but that's our bittering agent that'll kind of play with Campari a little, like the Campari plays in a traditional Negroni. That's what we're using that for. There's a lot of, and you can, Malort's a hard thing to mix with sometimes. It's got a real intense wormwood component. Um, but you can really take the edge off in the same way that you would, a lot of people would be reluctant to drink Campari straight because it's got a real intense bitter orange quality with uh, vermouth to sort of sweeten it out a little bit. And with vodka, which is our third component, this is a vodka martini or Martinez, um, it sort of dilutes it, but without reducing its uh, capacity to carry flavor. Because you've got something that has very little inherent flavor, but it's still got a lot of proof. So you can sort of unpack a lot of those dense herbal wormwood notes a little bit. So the last component here is one ounce of vodka. Uh, uh, of course, I'm using Crystal Head Vodka, again, from our benevolent sponsors at Infinium Brands. Yep, yep, got that in my, my little mixing glass. Going to put a little ice into it, give it a little stir-stir. Going to pick it up so it's next to the microphone. See that good, good stir effect? That's like a real cocktail. We're not even faking this one. Not that we ever do. There's uh, audio evidence to prove the uh, prove the other. All right. 
Pouring so, into a coupe glass. With this, too, I mean, I, I always, there's the argument for a Negroni up or a Negroni on the rocks. You prefer this uh, up? I prefer this cocktail up because it's a bit more of a Martinez. Uh, or it's, it's as much a Martinez variation as, as it is a Negroni variation. Uh, so I really think that up is the proper uh, presentation for Martini Martinez drinks. I think it's fine for a Negroni, although... If I had my druthers when I'm ordering a Negroni, if you've got a big rock, if you've got a, if I if I'm at a bar that has a sufficiently nuanced ice program that they have large format ice cubes, I'll get one of those. Otherwise, probably up. Cool, awesome. Well, that looks great, Cole. Uh, what is that name of that drink? One more time. Oh, this is the uh, the Van Buren because it's. Uh, I'm going to think of something that's just one more step removed from something that starts with the word Martin. Cool. So Excellent. Martini Martinez and the Martin Van Buren. <laughs> Let's go and grab a couple of these. We'll head back out to our recording area of the bar and uh, we'll finish up this uh, podcast. All righty. All right, we are back, drinks in hand, talking social justice with Sue Mobley and Karina Yazbek. Uh, I think. One of the things that struck me a little bit in uh, our first segment, I was a little surprised, Sue, when you used the term social justice warrior as a pejorative to describe the sort of casual go to the protest because it happens to be what's going on this week and bring a beer and like, isn't that neat? And Don't we feel good about ourselves? Let's pat ourselves on the back and then go back to our lives. A privileged kind of protester. Um, because it's become such a, a term that the right uses as a pejorative in a way to describe that exact same kind of people, but to cast everyone on our side and under the same net. And it's also, it's, there's a, a small list of insults, like social justice warrior, snowflake, and pussy, that I think people on the right use to describe people on the left. And I'm like, those are all perfectly fine oh, things you left to out be. Cuck. That's cuck. A, that's a one, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And what's wrong? It was like, so you're into cuckolding. Fine. How is that? <laughs> like, why are you going to knock people for that? <laughs> it's an odd insult. I've never understood it. I, I've, I've heard cuck described in a couple. One is that, like, you're, you're not enough of a man to, like, satisfy your woman. She's, she's going to be seeking it out and rubbing it in your face. And that's a bad thing. It was like, well, yeah. Or, or if that's what you're into, which is a pretty common fetish, guys. <laughs> the other thing that there's an element of racism to it, that it's a white supremacist thing and that we're really cucking our race by interbreeding with uh, with inferior people. And that there's an element of that is which white cuck so is there's insults. terrible people out there. There are. And Got they it. use the word cuck. Cool. <laughs> anyway, and they're on Nola.com's yeah, comment section. But like snowflake <laughs> is like unique and fragile and a really good metaphor for the human condition. And social justice warrior is like, oh, gee, you fight for the oppressed. What? What a terrible life choice you've made. That is like the worst insult of all time. Because like, I always feel like, and there's some points where like, I'm not the most eloquent person in the world. And like, when a conversation just boils down to like, oh, well, you're a social justice warrior. It's like, yeah, well, you're a fucking Nazi. So like, whatever. Like, I mean, like, and like, okay, cool. Well, I want to help people. And you just probably want to kill people or something like that. So, I mean, I don't understand. Like, because that, to me, that's like almost like just where that conversation comes to. That's what the opposite of it is. Like when just people start name calling, which is always stupid. But um, yeah, I just don't understand how that is an insult. Like what weight that carries behind it. But do you? But for you, Sue, you this this is a term that. And I've, honestly, we had some some of our like musician friends that hang out here. I once described one of them as a hipster because he had like a big afro and like thick glasses and a deep v-neck and he plays indie rock and i was like so you're kind of a hipster he's like no 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 the people who follow our band are hipsters <laughs> so is that is that that kind of attitude that's it's like oh we're we're the ones doing the actual work the, the hangers-on are the ones that deserve the pejorative <laughs> do you refer to them as the hangers-on <laughs> <laughs> i don't <laughs> it's a lot to unpack with this one. there is a lot to unpack with this one i think um 
well, one, that I was using air quotes around it. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> and then two, that there are many people that I see growing into being really thoughtful activists mm-hmm. um, out of being people whose point of entry is I'm showing up at the protest because that's what's happening this weekend. And mm-hmm. again, points of entry and making them easier. Um, I think there's often an arrogance that can come with being the person who shows up but who isn't there to do the work. I think there's an arrogance that can come with being the person who perceives of themselves as doing the work mm-hmm. and thus claiming the turf of the work mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't allow for new people to join or to question or to challenge. Um, and I think in general, I'm you know, everyone everyone should be in the battle for more social justice. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I kind of feel... Probably for me, thoughtfully. <laughs> I feel for me, like, I, I when I was younger, I used to volunteer a lot more, and I used to go to a lot more protests and things like that as well. And um, I got a little bit burned out on it because there's a certain sense of people who they just value their time a little bit more than other people and they think that like mm-hmm. showing up is a little bit difficult it's it's a real like big element of privilege i'm sure just like like it's i i am giving up the time to do this and that's like the most important thing because my time is extremely valuable and i i never view it that way i mean it's like my time is useless i mean i'm playing video games in my free time basically <laughs> so like showing up and doing something good's like yeah that's what you should be doing with your free time um and it's it's i always found it very hard to like, kind of like reconcile with that a little bit um, so I don't know if that's involved with the air quotes on that one as well, but well, I think my biggest action that I ever took part in was, um, February 14th, 2003. Um, is that right? That was really impressive. That's Iraq war stuff. <laughs> yes. It was yeah. against the invasion, invasion of Iraq. Um, yeah. and I was in New York city. I drove down from Massachusetts with vans full of people. It was Valentine's day too. That's also, I remember. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was freezing and there were three avenues full of people for like blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. It's like thousands of people. There's a Latigra song actually with, um, recordings of like, um, I, th- I think they, uh, sample Amy Goodman on democracy now, basically like taking off all the cities where people are protesting around the world. And it, like and and like samples of people giving speeches in New York and it's so powerful to this day it like gives me chills when I listen to this song mm. um but we still invaded Iraq like the majority <laughs> of Americans were against the invasion and the war and we and the government still did it and and I think after that I was just like ah there has to be a better use of my time than taking to the streets not that I don't see the value in that I'm so glad that and I still turn out I, and you right. turn out but but there's so much more to it than that. It's not yeah. that's not the only thing. Right, it's I not mean, enough. That can't be the only thing. Right. It's not that enough. can't be it's, like it's, my time is my yeah. contribution that's, that's, is showing up in the streets. But there's it's a val- and it's valuable. Enough. And right. then there, it's totally valuable. And because I, I do think there is yeah, as we know that it's important. If it, it, a it feels right. It feels important good to be part of broad collective action and there's very little that you can do that's so visibly a collective action than just gathering as many people in one place at the same time. It's mm. also incredibly affirming. Like my mm. son came out mm. with me to a lot of protests after the election because he was terrified. Yeah. yeah. And it was incredibly important for him mm. to see that there were other people who felt the same way he did and to be in community with them and to feel that he was like safe and loved in mm. community because he was 
you know, he had had kids at school tell him that he was going to be sold back into slavery oh, God. as soon as Jesus. Trump came into office or that we were going to be kicked out of the country because people like us no longer had a place here. Yeah, that's it's terrifying. <laughs> but yeah, I felt that way. I mean, I'm not an impressionable child. <laughs> you know, so people, And I'm also a white person, so I'm much less likely to be thrown out of the country by the stormtroopers. Give it time. <laughs> you just recorded We're this due. podcast. I think you're We're like due. up against the wall, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> um, my views on Taylor Swift will keep me safe. Actually, um, <laughs> future, uh, future ambassador for culture, Taylor Swift. <laughs> oh, God. While we scrub all of uh, our other music. I was gonna say, okay, uh, the after I, I I did I was I did a lot of pro- I was in college during the the first Bush years and did a lot of protesting. Uh, I went I was living I lived in Arcadia, which is Northern California, and I did I was in for Day X, which is what we were calling it, was the day that. Because they, they telegraphed the invasion like two months in advance. Yeah. They're like, we're going to invade on this day. So every, every liberal I knew was like, all right, mark on a calendar. take it to the streets on, on day X. Mm-hmm. And it was a big countdown and everything. So I was in Portland for day X. I was in San Francisco a few months later for another protest that was really big. And that was, that was just, it felt good. It just felt right. Like it was, the, it, was the, it was an obligation. And it was sort of the bare minimum. It wasn't the only thing I was doing at the time. Um, but it felt like the least I could do. Yeah. And like I found, like I got to do this, and then what else can I be doing? But this is the baseline. Right. Um, but in terms of the the feeling safe and good, and like the world isn't just a terrible place. The uh, Lily and I, my wife, we booked tickets to go to the inauguration, and we booked in in two thousand and I guess it would have been uh, 17 was the mm-hmm. inauguration for the 2016 election. And we booked the tickets before the election, as you might imagine. We were less excited about going to the inauguration afterwards until we heard about the Women's March the day after the inauguration. So we kept our tickets and, you know, just hunkered down and made posters on the day of the inauguration and then went out. And it was one of the greatest days of my life, being out in D.C. on the mall. Uh, in the same, I, I'm from D.C. I was born and raised in D.C. And you some, sort of take these public spaces for granted. But following in the literal footsteps of the civil rights movement and being there for the women's march felt like it was like the first day of the next step you know mm-hmm. like ever like there was the 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 period between the election and the inauguration when everyone was just like oh shit and then everyone was able to that was when it was like all right now it's real that happened and next day mm-hmm. and the, the the degree to which the crowds for the women's march absolutely dwarfed the crowds for the inauguration was one of the great comforts. And there's a little bit skewed there because D.C. is obviously a very liberal city. So people who just had to take the metro down to the protest, whereas people who were coming in for the inauguration probably were coming from farther afield. So that right. skews things a little bit. Because I was like, But he- that march was also echoed across oh, the country, yeah. across there the globe, on every continent. Yeah. Totally. I was, and I every was worried continent. about that, too, because I knew so many people who were going to the women's march in new orleans that same day it was like if everyone's just going to protest at home then no one's going to come to dc and it's going to feel very empty even though there's oh. thousands of people and it was the opposite of what happened yeah. it was just such a critical mass that it was it was invigorating and uh it made me feel great it made me feel optimistic for the first time that i hadn't felt that way in a while so yeah let's uh let's all take the country back everybody <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I think what's important is, you know, I think there's it's it's very easy to make excuses not to become more involved in things like we all have our jobs, like we struggle to different degrees economically and paying the bills and all that other stuff. And we have a lot of other things that demand our attention as well Um, for two people who definitely dedicate a lot of time for social justice issues and advocacy, um, you know, 
showing up to one protest might not be the best uh, isn't isn't like you know that's not going to solve anything what are steps that uh some of our listeners might be able to take mm-hmm. to get more involved i mean i think education's a big thing i think that like involvement's a big thing and then like showing up to these big things is i mean it's like you know three different steps you can really take so what's some advice that you might be able to give our listeners to be come more active because i think there's there there is a barrier of entry for a lot of people where they just you put up small barriers for yourself sometimes where it's like i just yeah. don't have time to do this it's like well maybe you do just think about it this way mm-hmm I mean, one of the things I've been thrilled to see over the past year is how many people have been like, right, I was nervous about calling my elected officials. Yeah. But now I have them on speed dial <laughs> and I wait until I've had two drinks and I call and I leave a voicemail. And I'm like, oh, wow, we've, we've, you've got a whole ritual around that. That's well done. <laughs> but I think that that, you know, holding, holding elected officials accountable, um, being willing to get on the phone, write the letter, sign the petition, go knock doors. Educate yourself and then educate others. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to the people who've been doing the work for a long time. I think one of the things I keep saying to sort of national funders and national philanthropy is like, look at the South, fund the South, yeah. organize the South. Yeah. We have been fighting all of these battles that are suddenly new on the national stage. <laughs> We've been fighting for time in memoriam. Mm-hmm. We know how to do this. But you have to be willing to follow the lead of the people who've been fighting the battles all along and, and learn the lessons. And maybe you do have a new innovation or a new idea or resources or access that weren't in play before and apply those. Do you think there's a, a flip side to that, too, that people who have been fighting the fight for so long might be a little entrenched or sort of stuck in their ways and the, that they could also value, find value in seeking young, fresh blood and new ideas? Oh, absolutely. And not just young, fresh blood, new, new to it blood. Yeah. Some mm. of my favorite folks to organize with, I helped to stand up the Indivisible New Orleans chapter. Um, and I still sit on the steering committee, mostly in an advisory role at this point, because I'm advisory on everything at this point. Wartime conciliary. (laughs) (laughs) Is seeing people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are infuriated by what they're seeing happen around them and who thought these battles were won Mm. and who are also coming to the table with decades of administrative experience Mm -hmm. or deep access to people that most activists and people in activist circles don't have access to and like new skills and talents to bring to the table. And that's powerful. Like I, you know, would have been hard pressed a couple of years ago to find somebody who could in their free time, set up a website, do the back end finances, set up an accounting system and like roll it out in 24 hours for a fledgling social justice oriented collaborative. I've (laughs) put people on that task three times in the past six months and it's never taken more than a day. Mm. That's a big change. Those are some real skills and they're skills that are needed. I do think one of the, one of the things that's like, if, if there is a good side to, to the current state of national politics, it's that it's forced a lot of people out of complacency. Yeah. That it people are like, oh shit, there's st- these people. Th- this isn't like I, I think a lot of people, and myself included, were can be, can be accused. Of, and I'm more active than most, but I still think that I should have done more, and I could have been doing more for the, my entire adult life. And as a relatively, you know, active person in these communities, even before the current uh, administration took office, I still think I could have been doing more. And I and now I am. 
now I'm doing a lot more than I was doing then. And I had that bandwidth. This isn't, you know, and so, I, but I think a lot of people are sort of in that same headset that, or mindset that they were like, oh, you know what? You know, the country's got some work to do, but we're moving in the right direction. Arc of social justice is long. Ben Storm's freedom, yada, yada, yada. Um, to, not to yada, yada, yada. I'm okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but then it's like, but it doesn't bend towards freedom unless yeah. we keep we bend it. bending we it. Bend it. Yeah, it's like it has bent towards freedom largely, but because of hard work and diligence mm-hmm. and, and keeping our fucking heads down, you know, and, and doing the work. Yeah, I guess my advice to folks who want to get involved and maybe are intimidated or overwhelmed at the prospect and, you know, we, we want to make it accessible. So it's a lot about how you set up and, and create spaces and, and who you're in relationship with and stepping outside comfort zones. Um, like us as organizers, we have to challenge ourselves to not just amass the usual suspects um, for things, but, um, you know, encourage people to come to fundraising events and give money and learn about new, like broaden their, their understanding of the issues, how complex they are and how they intersect with maybe what they are already are thinking about and caring about. Like I could, you know, we could talk about restoring people with felony convictions right to vote to coastal restoration and how those two things are inherently connected right like but but folks who are environmentalists might not understand like might not be involved in criminal justice reform and recognizing that all of these struggles are interconnected yeah Mm -hmm. and also holding space for that nobody comes to the revolution perfect right we're all still learning there's always room to grow nobody leaves the revolution perfect (laughs) (laughs) hopefully we do in in one piece that's sometimes (laughs) all we're aiming for the city's gonna be underwater (laughs) in 30 years we're fine (laughs) it's true we are like all pretty deeply flawed i feel like i'm learning this lesson personally right now that we are deeply flawed but our hearts um are most often in the right place and give money Give whatever you can give to the causes that struggle the most to raise money. Um, Collaboratives, collectives, groups that are not incorporated with um, 501c3 tax status, they can't get foundation grants, right? Mm -hmm. So they rely on individual contributions. And I've been fundraising for 17 years. And and my tagline is always, give amount that's, that's meaningful for you, that's personally significant for you. And it's different for every person. Um, so find something you believe in and invest in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when you're looking at like, okay, this is the issue that I care about. Mm-hmm. I told everyone at one point to like pick two. What are the what are your top two? <laughs> those are the things you're passionate about. Great, you're gonna you're gonna give to those. You're gonna learn everything you can about those. You're gonna figure out who's doing the work in those areas, and then like you're bringing that back to the larger group. Oh, as a, as a social collective. justice dilettante, I feel like <laughs> I should really winnow my <laughs> dilettante. <laughs> I feel like I can also be a dilettante and, and can also be like, I'm often working with, there at peak last year, I think it was 17 different organizations. Oh, my. Oh, hell. Terrible. So, and I feel like, solid. I feel like, <laughs> Do you need intervention? <laughs> also, it's, as it's a parent. It's much better now. Like, you, you, how old, how old is your, your son? He just turned nine. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably somewhat time-consuming as well. It is, though. At this point, I feel like my, one of the things that my son is really good at is that he knows that there may or may not be other children at any given mm. meeting or every, any given rally, and he has his bag. And in his bag, um, which is like a classic strand tote bag, <laughs> um, he has an iPad and he has books and he has crayons and he has coloring books and he has puzzles and they're all at different ages. And he will, he walked into um, a democratic socialist of America meeting 
at WHIV and was like, oh, there are other kids. Okay, I will assign them things. And he handed out books that were age appropriate and sat them all together in the corner and he ran the kids' corner. That's pretty that's amazing. An, yeah, that's yeah. exactly the word I was about to use. Ha, meet you do it, you uh. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I know we've mentioned on this show before too, but um, one thing that I'm very grateful for, especially working here at 12 Mile Limit, is Cole does a great job with finding good organizations that definitely ma- match my personal politics and I think kind of reflect like the nature of this bar, which is, you know, I've al- always loved this bar. It's been one of my favorite bars and now I have the chance to work here. And it's great because, you know, I work a lot and sometimes I don't have the time mm. to like, you know, dedicate to, to the causes I'd like to, but you know, being aligned to say like, Hey, we're doing a happy hour right near and like we're donating like portions of the tips or like portions of the sales to, to a good cause. That's like really good access. And I think that's like people who are in positions like this bartender servers and things like that. Like you could pick a day where you just say like, you know, let me, let me raise some money for a good cause. And like, you know, you can really tailor that to something in your community, something that like aligns with your values personally, something that speaks to you. And I think that's, that's really important, you know I mean? Cause that's not going to take up any of your time when it comes down to it. Like just a little bit of a budgeting, budgeting constraint, yeah. but you know, it's, it's definitely within the scope of what your normal life is. Willa Jean did that recently. I went there for brunch one Sunday during WWF. No, yeah. WrestleMania. WrestleMania. <laughs> Steve is our resident wrestling enthusiast here. It's the, it's the WrestleMania takeover that happens when it happens SmackDown, Raw, NXT. I mean, WrestleMania as well. Hall of Fame access. I mean, Your face just lit up. I know. This is adorable. <laughs> uh, how, how many hours that weekend did you watch professional wrestling? I went to. Was, <laughs> <laughs> WrestleMania was about 14 hours, it's Raw a was zone. about. Five hours, and I think takeover is probably another five hours. So that's a total of uh, twenty-four hours of wrestling over hours of wrestling over three choice. days. Yeah, good, good life choice, Steve. I, I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> well, they generated a lot of business for Willa Jean because it was nearby, mm-hmm. and the at least the folks serving behind the bar were collecting all their tips and donating it to think the Family Justice Center. Um, it was an anti-violence organization uh, or star. I can't remember which one. And um, and that was great. And then a friend of a friend donated all her tips bartending at Giacomo's one Saturday during some sportsing season. So there was there were sports on the TV and <laughs> lots of rowdy bros and people, co-eds watching sports. And um, I think she raised $1,000. Oh, wow. I, I have never written a $1,000 check donation to any mm-hmm. organization, but I was really impressed that she just worked one shift and raised $1,000. Yeah. Yeah, it can be really powerful. I mean, there's Negroni Week, Negroni Week which we've talked about, um, which is sponsored by a big liquor company, and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, everybody picks, like, what their cause is, and, like, a dollar from every sale goes out to it. And, I, and I, I've got my ideas of whether about how effective that is, when it comes down to it, but I, I mean, I think the the heart's in the right place with it. I think they've also made a lot of they've done a lot of work to make it more effective over the years. Yeah. You know, nobody nobody starts out at, at at the platonic ideal of for these things, but they they've made it a lot easier to interact with the platform. They made it a lot more effective. They've made it a lot. Uh, they, 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 there was a point where like you know you do five dollar you know you do five Negroni sales, you wouldn't really promote it. Then you know so, and so, and the, so people felt like the impact was muted. Uh, but I think they, they've, they've addressed a lot of the concerns that people had about the sure, Grady Week. They're selling so. Campari at cost to all the bars that are participating, right? No, no but they are, <laughs> they're, they're doing a large corporate contribution on their end as well. It's not just oh, a Campari that's sales that's tactic. Good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that was missing. That was part of the that. part of the complaint, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're, 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 they have skin in the game now, for real. To be clear, we're, we're not going to 
we're not going to consume our way out of oppression. Right. Yeah. So these are just some like gimmicky things that like people can do. That's easy. And like a good entry point. Right. But you can't buy enough things that you'll make the world a better place. How right. guys, how, <laughs> speaking of buying the right things though, uh, how do you guys feel about um, like investor activism? Mm. Like people saying, Oh, we, instead of saying we should sell all of our stock in an energy company because they have some terrible practice uh, that we should buy more of the stock in that energy company so we can direct where that energy company goes. Uh, is, is there a way to, to sort of use the tools of capitalism to, to change some of the effects of capitalism? How about we buy all the stock in that energy company and hand it out to the workers? <laughs> also theoretically an option if you were able to con- <laughs> acquire yeah, a majority share in an energy company. Um, but yeah, is, what, what's the role, so what's the role of, 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 of shareholder cons- activism? Of shareholder activism and various ways of sort of seizing the tools of capitalism for good. Because capitalism is a powerful force and I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it might. <laughs> Steve's let, don't leave him there. Hand. We go. <laughs> I High mean, five I'm between more... Steve and Sue on smashing capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a little left of where I stand as a business owner. But come on over. I'm, I'm way more excited about solidarity economy. I don't know. You and I have never talked about this, but the... <laughs> this is the time. This is the place. We've the got five minutes cards on the table. But I yeah. imagine we're like we agree or we're aligned on this. Um, so I used to live in Western Massachusetts. The U.S. Uh, head of the uh, Solidarity Economy and Network is based at UMass Amherst, and it's it's international, right? It's a, an alternative to capitalism. Another, but it's a you know it's a model whereby production is owned by workers, and the different the different components of production all see themselves as part of the success of the overall end result. So, like you, your distributors, the production companies, your bartenders like everybody you all like all of your economic success is reliant on each other's mm. the the truck drivers like you we're all in it together yeah exactly mm-hmm. that's the, the basic principle i mean that seems <laughs> i for me to a certain extent that seems somewhat self-evident but like i'm not going to get anything done without those truck drivers and without mm-hmm. the producers and without the consumers on the other end it's like we need all we all need all of them it for does this seem equation. self-evident, doesn't it? <laughs> and yet, capitalism and yet. <laughs> at its, in its current incarnation and at its root extracts those who own capital from that equation and puts them on a higher level mm. and then extracts capital towards them um, and allows the erosion of that interconnectedness, of that interdependentness to favor mm-hmm. the very small few at the expense of everyone else who makes up that ecosystem, mm-hmm. at the expense of the environment that underpins that ecosystem. Yeah, I think people people forget I mean, if you if you've taken sort of entry level micro macroeconomic classes in uh, in an academic context, one of the things that's like businesses aren't actually supposed to make money in a rational economic system with perfect information and equal access to resources. That's, that's what the quote unquote rational economic system, right? This is clearly not, this is not the world we live in, but in a purely economic, like I mean, a pure economic system, businesses don't make any money. They, because of the, because of there's, because there's competition and people have other options for those businesses or for those, re, for what those businesses are selling. Um, there that 
yeah, that, that's that's the the platonic ideal almost is for businesses to all break even. But then the people who work at those businesses are paid fairly for the work that they put in. Um, and that's not the world that we live in anymore. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I was going somewhere with that. But no, I, no, no, I think I you lost, lost it there thread. for a second. That's I all lost right. my thread. It's cool. Got it. Um, Capitalist pig. Capitalist pig. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wonderful. Yeah. The, the, the separation of the the financiers from the rest of the system, I think is, is, is where you start to get that, that the, mm. the people who view themselves as money creators, mm. um, are, are sort of the, a privileged class that can extract more value from the system. And over the last, I don't know what, since, since about forever. the, well, I mean, yes, forever, <laughs> but to an, to an increasing extent in the last, say 50 years, the degree to which, sort of the banker class, for lack of a better term, has gotten a larger and larger piece of the pie and where the, the, the workers and people who actually like build things and you know, do have jobs. Think <laughs> um, of it as being a microcosm in the past 50 years that emerges that looks like the global economy over the past 500. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look mm-hmm. at workers as being, say, the nations of Africa... South America and Asia and their exploitation by the European few. Mm-hmm. This is how it feels when it comes closer to home. So once, once we sort of, yeah, like w- once the world was small enough that we knew where all of it was and it was like, oh, there wasn't, we, there were, we're, I guess the, the leveling of the global economic uh, playing field to a certain extent. We have all of these com- countries that are, we use the term developing countries, once those are more and more developed, it's less economically advantageous to exploit workers there, and it becomes more and more economically advantageous to re- rediscover the exploitation of workers closer to home. Oh, I think that once it becomes less advantageous to absolutely demolish workers elsewhere, <laughs> or to marginalize people to the point of genocide, it becomes necessary to exploit those at home and closer to home further. Yeah. Late stage capitalism is accelerationist. It's the same model. It's just getting tighter. It's hurting people who <laughs> look more like the people who are hurting them than it used to. Mm-hmm. To a certain, but its nature hasn't does, changed. Does that open up an opportunity? Because a lot of people who look like me, being the white man at this table right now, uh, a lot of people who look like me are seem more likely to get involved when it's other people who look like me that are affected. Funny how that works. Right. <laughs> and that's probably true of other groups, too. Um, it's just that we're not as used to it as those other groups, perhaps. So it's like, oh, wait a second. I can be oppressed? Well, I can't have that. Well, or you can be, people can rise up and overthrow you and, and chop your head off, right? Like Press Kavikov, actually. Maybe you guys have read this article. You went straight from guillotine to Press Kavikov. Because he talks about this. Segue. He says if we continue to to widen the wealth divide, especially in New Orleans, and marginalize, displace people and squeeze their wages, like they're coming for us. Yeah. There will be pitchforks and torches. Yeah. Right. There's only so far you can Well, I mean, you know, the service industry and the service economy is already starting to organize. You know, yeah. we're seeing them like, you know, they just uh, interrupted that new transition for the tourism board, which isn't the tourism board anymore. Uh, yeah. The, I didn't know oh, about I forget that. What, oh, yeah. There was yeah. a group called the, the Hospitality the, Workers Committee, which is part of the workers group. Mm-hmm. That's the one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I read about it and I heard about it on the radio on the same day. And I was like, oh, we should, I should reach out. So That's I actually, exciting. I reached out to Ethan. 
Elistat, or no, I, I put it on Facebook. I was like, hey, does anybody know, anybody connect over there? Because I want to talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> like, but this I mean, is the work they're doing. I'm, clearly, I'm interested. it's like. And Ethan put me in touch. Friend of the show, Ethan Elistat from the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. Magna represent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> friends of the show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's, that's it, right? I mean, like, the, the aspect of seizing the means of production in this city is like, we've got, like, you know, the denigration of service employees, including mm. musicians, including all entertainers, all bartenders, servers, cooks, and everything like that. That's like where a majority of, like, our taxes are coming from, you know? That's like the appeal for, like, why people, like, when we put all the money into tourism, why are people coming to New Orleans? It's for all these things. And there are no benefits. There is no health care provided. There are not fair wages provided. Uh, music's treated like uh, a nuisance. It's called noise. You know, we've talked about that with Macno. You know, like they're taking away jobs and making sure that, like, you know, people can't afford living, you know? So. Also, most of those taxes that go in don't come back to the city. No, they go out to they the state. They go to the state, and then they come back to the Convention Visitors Bureau, and they come back at about $20 million a year. Um, mm-hmm. The convention center, center is sitting on a $240 million pool of yeah. money that could provide a universal basic income for every musician, culture bearer, service worker in the city. We mm-hmm. could have affordable housing. We could have living wages. Free clinic. We could have a free clinic. That's... Though, to be fair, we do actually have more access to free and low-income health care than almost any other service. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's not maybe the primary ask mm-hmm. what what do you think uh, housing affordability housing. Was, that, housing. was that the big one? Oh, like those dorms they're going to build downtown right <laughs> oh service worker dorms is that, is that oh still God. being talked they're about they're so expensive they're were they going to be really expensive right the like i thought it got shut down <laughs> oh but the proposal was that they were for you know mid 20 somethings and the cost of them was still pretty high it was a Maybe reflection eight, of what the city thought there. service employees deserve it was shared common space. A reflection mm-hmm. yeah. of the conception of a mid 20 somethings creative class. That's like a classic yep. Richard Florida. Ugh. These people who are coming through here who will be here for a brief period of time and not at all, you know, the wages in the service economy. We, we talk about it in terms of like waitresses and bartenders yeah. a lot, but like the average wage for a hotel housekeeper is less than 14,000 a year. Good Lord. That is 20% of our population makes less than $10,000 a year. The average musician is seventeen eight, and that's moved 5% up in the past decade. It's a non-starter mm-hmm. to have a city that is as economically unbalanced as this one and expect that it's going to do anything other than be perpetually riddled with violence and on the brink of a revolution. So yeah, press has a point. <laughs> Let's straighten it out, or the guillotines are hey, cool. coming to the neutral ground. Yeah, can your can your new business be a worker-owned and run cooperative? I'll talk Ooh. to my other partners about whether or not that's, that's a, a nice way of saying no. I'm I texting think, one right? of your partners right now. All, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, I don't know why we'll that can't be a that. thing, especially for restaurants and bars. I proposed that when we opened up uh, Latitude, like we were talking about, like how do we compensate our workers and things like that. It's like, well, why don't we just ensure like a basic salary for everybody mm-hmm. you know like you can work that on the budget pay a base salary you know distribute the tips evenly like across the board which i know is not like federally like you know smiled upon but no it's well they, they just they recently said that you could distribute tips with back a house now oh, yeah, that's that's, that, right. that's legal and they but they and they shot down 
the the companies taking tips. So it was kind of a, a win win. Sure. So that the tip distribution for front and back of house is allowed, but tip distribution with ownership is not allowed. But um, then, like you know, profit sharing across just, the board as well too. You know, set up a model for people, give them fair raises and things like that, and give them encouragement to say like, hey, if we're going to be busier, you're going to be making more money. If you work harder for this, then that will be reflected in your indus- in your like you know endeavors. Like that's the thing. Like the separation between you know, front of house and back of house, which is a clear aspect of privilege across the board, mm-hmm. is that like, you know, as a bartender or a, a, a server, you're going to be rewarded for your hard work. Yeah. That, if, that, the busier you are, the, the your compensation increases proportion to right. that. But uh, for a cook, you pay the same amount of money. Yep. For a dishwasher, you pay the same amount of money. Yep. I mean, if you have to wash 5,000 dishes or as opposed to 50 dishes. Yep. I know Whole Foods is not the be all end all golden model for a corporation, but they used to a lot worse (laughs) they used to have profit sharing where like in your department if you came under your labor budget and sales reached a certain level then especially if you were in a department that generated its own sales so like the meat department or the prepared foods department you're you would get some of that in your check you would get profit sharing yeah i mean i'm i'm a big advocate for moving away from the tip system yeah. like i think that's like it's a it's a hugely problematic thing and everybody just like the argument against that is always that it can't like you know it's there's no other solution like this is the <laughs> only thing this is the only way it works that's what everybody's gonna say and like you'll bring that up in a, a room full of bartenders and like they flip out they just they're just like no i depend on this and it's like you know you've you've created the system where like bartenders are the pinnacle of like the tip service industry employee at this point mm-hmm. we're used to a lot of like making more money we're yeah. used to like a certain amount of comfort but at what expense does that really come from? But there, there have to be ways. You know, there's, there's not even like difficult ways. There's ways to address it. There's ways to buck the, the rest system of the changing. world doesn't do it that way. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> like literally, there are not only other ways, but they're like in practice right. everywhere else. But even within our own economic model, there's a way that I think you can like divide the pie up or create a business like with a business plan that ensures the longevity and the health and the well-being of your employees financially, mentally, and all these other things. And I don't think it's like, you know, some unsolvable problem. Is there a workshop on that at Tales of the Cocktail this year? No. That's a... That's a callback. I like that. At least in the, no, that, yeah, that's good. Um, but yeah, in the, I know that in, in the Northwest, at least, there are, a few, there are a few businesses that are attempting a similar model. So maybe... No, but then like even those businesses as well, people look at them and they're just waiting for them to fail. Like Danny Meyer's restaurants in New York, which are problematic when it comes down to it. Like everybody wants to look at anecdotal evidence to just say like, this is failing. This will never work. We have to go back to tips and things like that. That's the only way this could possibly work. But I'm saying that there, there have got to be ones now at this point that have demonstrated a track record of success a lot of them gone out of business in seattle especially uh well and and seattle i mean the difficulty of 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 operating a restaurant with a 15 dollars minimum wage is not insignificant as a business owner i don't know if my business could survive in that environment so i mean it it, 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 i I would i would love to live in a world where i owned a business that could afford to people pay people 15 dollars an hour and i and our and our 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 front of the house nobody makes less than 11 dollars an hour here uh and our front of the house staff uh i think routinely makes more than 15 dollars an hour including tips i mean we're very privileged we make yes oh yeah yeah we're we're not we're not the the struggling in the way that many people in the service industry are right but the Um, prices of your products would have to rise in mm -hmm. order to make it possible for you Uh, and that's what the danny meyer menus all explain right right but people and people have a hard time seeing that the consumer sees you know the the consumer sees i want to pay five dollars and tip 20 percent and they see that and the the psychological perception is that that costs less than something that costs six dollars right you know Mm. 
It's, it's a hard thing to get people to accept. And if you're the first person doing it, then people are going to have a hard time getting on board with that on a, from the consumer level. Yeah. And the, 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 those consumers are without those consumers, then you don't have then the whole model falls apart. Don't support cheap restaurants. <laughs> that's a that's a big thing. I was trying to explain to somebody recently. It's like it's like if somebody's like, I love this restaurant because I can go in there and I can get in and out for like less than fifteen dollars. It's like I know that dishwasher is probably yeah. getting paid twenty dollars a day under the table back there. Don't support that. We yeah. can't we can't support people who aren't taking care of their employees. And like end of the line, you know how a business is functioning by the number of people who are coming in and what their average price point is. That's fascinating. I would love to see like a review of how restaurants treat their employees. Like a like Hotel Workers Rising has a what hotels around the nation are unionized and like how they're rated. Yeah, in terms of yeah, uh, generational like Asian American restaurants and businesses and things like that. Super problematic because like the thing has been like you know oh I can go and get a bond me at this restaurant it's like six dollars and it's like they've always charged six dollars. Well, they're going out of business now, and then you've got the generations coming up that don't want to continue those businesses because they can't make money. And if they raise their price. Is all of a sudden like they're going to get like they alienate their consumer base absolutely because yeah. it's just not a six dollar bond me anymore when that should have been a ten dollar bond me to begin with yeah you know i um was recently working on a memo for the new mayoral administration and um texted my friend our ndas are expired yeah <laughs> we'll have this moment we're really excited about that yeah 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 okay. This is outside of the transition team process. This is um, from Vera, with my Vera hat on. Um, sort of looking at like what what's next, like what's coming down the pike um, for big picture criminal justice reform to secure justice over the next 300 years in New Orleans. Um, and I texted my friend Aaron Clark Rizzio, who if you haven't had on the podcast, you should. He's oh, the executive director <laughs> of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. They're the public defenders for kids in the juvenile justice system. Awesome. Um, and they also and do... they're amazing. They're amazing. They do policy work at the state level and the local levels. And I just texted him. I was like, hey, if you had three things that you would want to see change for young people in New Orleans to keep them out of the criminal justice system, what would it be? He's like, I'm at an airport. Off the top of my head, here they are, right? Um, and chief among them was uh, was um, mentorship, men- internship, and uh, pathways to jobs that pay living, sustainable wages for kids right. so that they're not doing stupid things, so they're not idle, so they're not outside where they're at risk, so they're not... Yeah, so they're, they just have sort of hopes for their future, like right. an, an actual bright future. The uh, the celebrity chef culinary explosion that's happened recently is doing mm. like huge amounts of damage in that aspect that's too. That's awesome. Well, no, no, it's no, bad. bad. It's things. really bad. Wait, I, I don't mean, understand. So like like one of the things now is like you've got like you know kids who are seeing like they have like oh look at all these celebrity chefs yeah. or look, like the restaurant industry is really hot at this point. So cool. Let me go to this culinary institute. Let me pay like oh. you know forty thousand dollars a year. Let me bury myself in student debt, and then I'm going to find an eleven dollar an hour job. Yep. Yeah. I mean that's happening to my sister right now. She went to Johnson and Wales for four years, yeah. which is crazy. Forty thousand thousand dollar a year culinary institute she's got a bachelor's i guess but you know it's like you know she's she's a cook now right and i mean it's like you like that's that's skills that you can pick up by just like going through work experience right but in a lot of places a lot of restaurants prefer to hire people who haven't had that that traditional culinary background because they you come in with a lot of sort of preconceived notions about a kitchen's supposed to work from an academic perspective that might not always jive with reality When when i worked in a restaurant that had a larger kitchen that was definitely like they preferred to hire people with no experience, start them as either food runners or dishwashers, and then those people would be line cooks before you knew right. it. But they, those were the people that were valued ahead of the people that were coming out of the culinary institute, like come in, unwrap their knife roll, and like <laughs> show off all their new skills. It's like, yeah. you don't know what you're fucking doing. <laughs> 
I feel like this is a, a conversation that I've had a couple times this week, and and most mm. notably Andrea Chen and I were talking about it in terms of propeller and yeah. what it means to sort of create space for young people to be brought in as you know, this is a point of entry into the working world where there is going to be like support around you and mentorship around you and love around you and and a recognition that you're not coming with that mm. academic background and you're not necessarily coming with like a lot of formal work structure mm-hmm. or even like generational experience of work, but that this opens up a new set of, wor- of worlds and contacts yeah. and can be a place where like you oh. make a living wage, learn how to do a thing, get the experience of doing a job and get the soft skills without it having to be a huge deal or a program that we have a ribbon cutting for, but just a way to like create space to take a risk on someone where it isn't that much of a risk. And it's also, let's be clear, and I'm sure you, like we're all in agreement, like this is reinvesting in families that have been systematically disinvested from in communities that have been over-policed and under-protected and under-resourced by design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, it, right, we, we should not pat ourselves on the back. We are, it's like reparations. Like right. we are making up for the harms that our parents' generation did and their generation before that. And parents. we should own that, that, it's, yeah. that it is a deliberate choice. Yeah. Because sometimes it's also going to look like, well, but my, you know, my degree from Loyola should have gotten me this internship. Well, mm. yes. The entitlement. Mm. And the entitlement and the the privilege and the sense of I should be the one to rise up because I'm supposed to be in this space. Yeah. And in order to to undo that discrimination, in order to undo those deliberate disinvestments, mm-hmm. it is going to mean making the choices to invest where yep. people have been harmed. It's going to mean leaning into the reverse of that privilege in ways that are also a display of prejudice, but are the writing of old wrongs. Yeah. All right. Well, I, we're, we're like 20 minutes over time (laughs) at this point. That was a great conversation. It got really juicy. Yeah. yeah, Sometimes we've got to let it ride. We're in an hour hour and 20 minute episode. That's all right. Wait, can I say one more thing? Yeah. My friend Erica used to work for the mayor's office, um, helping place kids at high risk of, um, gun violence and justice system involvement. And she also said it's super important to train employers. Absolutely. People like you. Good (laughs) Lord. Train employees. Not just soft skills for job seekers who haven't had a lot of traditional employment experience. But um, how do you mean train employers? Yeah, what, what, what re- and what resources are available to train employers? Not enough. Yeah, let's start there. I mean, yeah. I, and for me, it's like as an employer, it's 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 like I try to hire people for the front of the house that are already have a foundational like knowledge of cocktails and are already working bartenders. So it cuts down on our training time. But there aren't a lot of people who come from. Uh, traditionally disenfranchised groups that that meet the criteria to just plug and play that way so how do i how do i for example as a business owner help undo the wrongs of the world without sacrificing the resources that it takes to bring somebody up to speed if they don't have the and 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 it is a market privilege that a lot of it is like the, the the degree of you know the education that you've received, the so, uh, both socially and in, a, in an academic sense, that is sort of required for for the delicate art of fine, like of front of house service. Um, how do I hire people who are and and bring them up in a, without losing a beat? You know? So I guess the question becomes: How do you transition people from back of house to front of house? Mm-hmm. 
That's part of it. Like, how do you scaffold? How do you provide support along the way? And whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you're going to shadow this person until you're ready to be up here. But, like, there's a path forward. Um, Because that, particularly for service industry, I feel like is often what is really delimiting is, like, there's who belongs back there and who belongs up here. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I moved to New Orleans, my, my... some of my family was already here. My aunt in particular was like, well, I like had a long conversation with my mother where she was like, well, she's light skinned enough to work front of house and she's well spoken. So it'll probably be okay. Hmm. And then you became a union organizer. I mean, <laughs> among my, my, other things. my grandparents were union organizers. <laughs> my parents were civil rights organizers. They met during the Poor People's Campaign. I love that. That's super sweet. I just mean you're not you're not just settling for like what you can pass to get. No, you're, you're like no. I'm I'm changing everything. I'm right. changing the rules of right. this workplace. But like that that was the immediate yeah. frame, and yeah. that was the point where I was like I had, you know finished high school was taking a year off before college but that was still the frame yeah was like this is what's available here and it's entirely contingent upon color Mm -hmm. and it's entirely contingent around linguistic skills Mm -hmm. um and that's still true and they're definitely like i was i was the only black person in front of house in at least four different places over five years whoa there's there's so much discrimination with that with like application processes with like interviews and things like that just like you know if if it's like you know you're not well spoken or you weren't uh, taught how to write an essay like so much gets limited to you in this yeah. industry as well like you know there's a lot of opportunities to do like go to conferences and like educational opportunities and all of them are like write three essays and it's just right. like once you do that i mean that's that's just saying it's like if you ha- did not have access to proper education you know if you don't have what's traditionally thought as like you know being a well-spoken individual like you'll never get past that barrier mm-hmm. and i would imagine that the, there's a there's a lot of academic work that's been written about the subconscious bias for people doing hiring based on names Oh yeah. That mm-hmm. I would imagine Sue, you're you're you being Suzanne Juliet might have given you an advantage going into those spaces that somebody named Lashonda who looked like you might not have had. I mean, certainly true though I like never use my full name on anything ever. <laughs> Except my Facebook page, which is mostly to keep people away from. So you know me. who your real friends Just are. Just totally failed. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well yeah. that's been around with Sue. <laughs> <laughs> We like to wrap up our show. Um, I think it's great for our guests to be able to reintroduce who they are and uh, do a little thing we like to call parting shots. It's just one more nugget of knowledge you can drop on our listeners. So uh, to leave them with a little bit of a parting shot. So why don't we go and start with? All right. Uh, my name is Karina Yazbek. I am the senior associate for strategic partnerships at the Vera Institute of Justice in New Orleans. And my nugget of knowledge is that. We need to rethink what makes safe communities and make sure that that includes everyone um, and that includes justice and and freedom for all people in our in our city and our communities. Sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sue, you had a little time to think about it. What do you no, What do you got for us? Worse. because <laughs> now there's pressure on it. All right. Well, just start with who you are, where you work. All the seventeen organizations that you re- I'm really represent. Do that, though. Oh, okay, that, that could be your parting shot. Just like rapid fire, who you got? 
I'm Sue Mobley. I'm the Public Programs Manager at the Albertina Small Center for Collaborative Design at Tulane School of Architecture. I am co-director of the Paper Monuments Project. I am director for advocacy at Co-Locate Design. I'm on the steering committee of Indivisible. I am board member emeritus of the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. I'm the co-chair of the Socialists of Color Caucus for the Democratic Socialists of New of America New Orleans chapter and I think there's probably like 12 other things in there. All right. Good <laughs> start. <laughs> mostly, I think my, my takeaway, or for all of you, uh, my giveaway, is to be patient with yourself and each other and to know that nobody comes to the revolution perfect, but most of us come with good hearts and goodwill and take the time to educate yourself and each other and to talk to the people that you have access to and influence over about how they can be doing more in the world or at least hearing voices different than their own. Um, this is Cole. This is my podcast. You probably knew uh, who I am already. Uh, but for, for, for parting shots, uh, I would just like a shout out to other business owners. Um, you don't have to stay on the sidelines. You're not, you may alienate some people, but you're going to bring some other people in, in the door by, by standing up for what you believe in. Uh, if, if Hobby Lobby can go out there and fight against access to uh, reproductive health and use their, the clout of their business, I don't agree with them, but I agree with their right to do so. And that just means that everyone else has to be exercising their rights. So I know, no matter how big or small your business is, you have some power as a business person. You have status in the community. Um, you have a voice and you can amplify your beliefs and that's a choice that is that is important to make i think that we're living in an age where it's no longer acceptable for anyone to really sit on the sidelines anymore and pretend that their their work can fully be separate from uh the, their beliefs so get get in there everybody fight for what you believe in and use all of the resources that you have to do so steve you got a you got a party shot for us Man, that's a hard one to follow up, I think. I mean, there's a whole bunch of hard stuff right there. Um, Stevie Mata here, uh, Shadow King of New Orleans. Thanks again for tuning into Around with Stephen Cole. We really appreciate it. Uh, a great episode. A lot of, uh, a lot of things to kind of cling on to here. Uh, if you've listened to this and you're upset and think, who are these people? What are they talking about? They're just like, you know, just a bunch of radicals out there or something like that. <laughs> Yo, I mean, s- send us an angry Facebook message. We will read them on a future episode. That sounds pretty great, actually. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's about embracing things that you, that you really believe in you know i've definitely struggled to be able to articulate the things that i want to believe in the things that i want to support and everything like that for most of my life i come from you know you know a conservative state i live in the south lived in the south my entire life and you know worked in an industry where you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion which is crazy because a bar is supposed to be a community center you know you build communities around these establishments where people go to relax and want to be able to talk thing talk about things and i think it's getting better you know working here at 12 mile it's it's nice to be able to have a place where you know you don't feel like you have to censor yourself and you can be the person who you actually are um i'm excited to become more of an ally um i know that there is work that needs to be done in order to consider yourself to be a true ally for many of these causes um it's not just about saying that you believe this it's not about making facebook posts or twitter mm-hmm. posts and saying that isn't this terrible or sharing an article it's about doing the research it's about doing the work it's about showing up it's about donating your time your money and who you are as a person and really being able to show up so that's all I got. Uh, it's been a super long episode. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a two-parter. We'll see how the editing process works. But uh, I'm Stevie Mata. T. Cole Newton. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers.
theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie.